have been doing a New Testament survey here. And this week we've hit the book of 1 Peter. And I'm delighted that you're here this morning to do it. Yes, as I look back on my life, sometimes I regret that there's not a pause button because I'm enjoying the moment so much. I'd like to just pause. There are many times I'd love to hit the rewind button. I would love to get to go back and experience some things that, that I can't rewind. And, and I wish so much that I could. I've got to tell you, I have not fully accepted the idea of growing older. Um, uh, and I am not the guy with the cane yet. I am the guy with the paunch right next to the guy with the cane. I have not yet gotten um, at peace with the idea of growing older. I look back at my life, and, and it's been a fascinating ride, but it's one where, you know, at my childhood, yes, it was really good. I tell the story in the handout about when I was in, in Rochester, New York, in about third or fourth grade, and, and the, the cafeteria there made a peanut butter cookie that frankly, until I'd had Mark Wilkie's, was the best peanut butter cookie I'd ever eaten in my life. It was good. And I told mom one day, I said, you know, mom, can I have an extra nickel or whatever it may have been for lunch? And she said, why? I said, because of these peanut butter cookies, I'd really like one. And she said, well, I'll just make some. And I said, well, actually, can I have a nickel because while my mom is is uh, definitely in the top three cooks of my life, these cookies were that good. Well, mom is is a source of some of the competitive spirit in our house. And unknown to me, she called the school cafeteria to find out where they got these cookies from. And actually found out there was an elderly lady who made the cookies from scratch in the school cafeteria. The The peanut butter cookies. So mom said, I want the recipe. The lady said, well, the key is I buy my own peanut butter and bring it in here because it's freshly ground. Mom said, where do you buy it? And within a couple of weeks, I was homesick. And when I was homesick, mom said, get in the car. We're going to buy some peanut butter. I said, what? She said, I can make that woman's cookies. And uh, and mom did. In fact, moms were even better because they were made with love. <laughs> but I mean, I had a good life growing up. You know, high school. I loved high school. My sweet wife Becky. I took her out on two dates in high school. How could you not like high school? It was a marvelous time to be alive. That's right. Um, um, and, and, and college was a gas and, and I, I loved, I loved law school. I loved being a young lawyer. Although I'll tell you, this is when I realized I was growing up. When I got that job and for the first time in my life, there was no such thing as spring break. And it just stunned me. I'd been working for about a year and a half and I thought, what's missing? What's missing? We didn't have spring break here. And uh, no, that law firm did not have spring break. But one of the interesting things as I look through my life, which has been a good life, it's been a life of faith. I've been a believer all my life. I mean, as I look at my life in faith, I liken it to an underground reservoir that runs underneath the surface of the earth and bubbles up in various places. And so I can look at my life and I can see an expression of my life in different times that might, for appearances, look even very different. 
but really are just that at that stage in my life, the upflowing of the same life and the same faith. And I find that useful to me when I read a book like 1 Timothy. Because Timothy is someone we know a lot about when we read the Gospels. Timothy is someone we know a lot about when we read Acts up to the point we meet Paul. And then we don't know much about Timothy for a long time as we work through our Bibles chronologically. Oh, Paul will reference him in Galatians. Paul will make a reference to him in 1 Corinthians. But zooming in on Peter, very little. And then we have this letter called 1 Peter. And it's almost like, do you remember who he was? By the way, your art secret. Anytime you're looking at a painting of saints or a... um, uh, What's that called? A sculpture? A sculpture of saints. Anytime you're looking at them, you can pick Peter out because he has the keys. In medieval painting and before, they would always put Peter with the keys. Paul generally will have what? A book. Because Paul was such a prolific writer in the New Testament, the early church would, and, and, and the, the medieval church would frequently paint Paul with a book, not early church, they don't really paint the saints, but the medieval church certainly would be painting Paul with a book generally. So Peter is this brand new guy. And I've got to tell you, in the book of 1 Peter, if you were to go as a, by the way, visitors, this is called a life group, but it's Bible study. This is, I don't get up here and preach like our pastor David, who does a fantastic job preaching. He does the sermon. We do Bible study in here. So excuse me if we address some things that aren't simply life-changing, but are important when we study the Bible. So with that, if you go pull a a commentary off the shelves, you've got about a 50% on 1 Peter. You've got about a 50% chance that that commentary will question and some argue for Peter not having written the book. At least half of the commentaries that I pulled to get ready for this lesson will all say, and when I say I pulled them to get ready for the lesson, not the lesson itself, but to, to, to see what they had to say on this issue. I pulled the commentaries. And about half of them either seriously question or just dismiss the idea that Peter wrote 1 Peter. Now, we're believers. We're in an evangelical church. But I want to tell you, I believe that our brains, though we are fallen people and we have to be careful... But God didn't give us our brains for us to put them on the hat shelf when we walk into church. I think it's appropriate to look at these questions. And I think it's appropriate to use our brains to try to figure out what the truth is. And so I want to talk about the authorship questions initially in this lesson of 1 Peter. Now, I've put the Greek up here because some of you did our life group Greek last fall, so I still try to plug in some Greek. I want you to look at that, 
And uh, let's see if we can read any of that at all. Try to read it in your own head. I've parsed the words out. I'm interested in only the first line. That is the first line. Those are the first four words of First Peter. Petros. Peter. Very good. Apostolos. Yes. An apostle. Iesu Christu. Jesus Christ. And when you put the O-U ending on there, that's the genitive case. That's the, the label that that word wears telling you that you can use the word of with me. So this is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the way it starts out. And then he says, eklektois. The O-I-S at the end means to or toward. Okay, so to. You care to guess what eclect means? How about elect? Pretty close, isn't it? Eclectois. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect... Now, you're not going to know what paripodemos is, but that's exiles. And then Janet Seaford, are you here today? Your favorite Greek word, diasporas, of the diasporas, of the dispersion. Those of Pontus, those of Galatia, those of Cappadocia, those of Asia. That's the way the letter starts. Now, what's the question of authorship? It starts out. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who's questioning this? Scholars of the last 250 years. Christianity hit an intellectual movement. And a lot of people are stunned to find out that many who teach the Bible don't believe in the Bible in the sense that we as as an evangelical church believe in the Bible. In fact, I, I've had some people I've, I've, I've sat and listened to and, and discussed with who don't really have uh, any faith in God at all. There are some pretty strong atheists out there who teach the Bible. You can go to uh, Chapel Hill and listen to Bart Ehrman teach the Bible. But Bart Ehrman in his New Testament, Bart Ehrman will never give credit to 1 Peter for writing this, I suspect. I don't remember distinctly. But what's the question? It says it. Well, the question is, is it right? That's the question. So in this issue of did Peter write 1 Peter, there are a number of different arguments and questions that arise on this issue. I've pulled out the four that are most often cited for us to look at. Number one, the Greek of 1 Peter is just too stinking good for some Galilean fisherman to have written. I mean, this is next to the book of Hebrews and maybe some of Acts. This is some of the best Greek in the New Testament. The, the, the Greek, if you've ever, if, if you've ever tried to, to write in Greek, which we had to do some, 
and I still try to do some sometimes just because it's good practice, it's hard. This is really good Greek. And the idea is, you've got this fisherman from the northwest shore of Galilee who's Jewish, who's probably got a good handle on Hebrew, got a good handle on Aramaic, and may have some Greek, though I would argue he clearly has a lot of Greek. I think Jesus was very good with Greek as well. But but how does he manage to write this? Question number two. Well, it may be. This book, 1 Peter, uses the Greek Old Testament. Commonly, the word Septuagint is used as if there was one Greek translation. I think indications are there were more than one Greek translation of the Old Testament floating around. Call it Septuagint. Call it what you will. Peter doesn't quote out of the Hebrew text, at least the Masoretic text that we're familiar with. He seems to be using the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament doesn't seem to be what a fisherman from Galilee would be using. Number three, the book of 1 Peter has all of these Paulinisms. I loved what Rabbi Joe said last night. I think it was in the Q&A, though it may have been in your your lecture, where he said that, uh, you know, Peter, let's put it this way. Paul was to Peter what... Chief Justice John Roberts, well, maybe not Chief Justice, let's say the Attorney General of the United States of America is to Fisher Joe down in Galveston, who's out trawling for bait. Paul was a major prosecutor for Israel. He was a select student of Gamaliel, the Chief Justice of the Sanhedrin. And then you've got, so, so you've got Peter, who's actually a follower of Jesus, who gets the keys to the kingdom, in some sense, however you interpret it. But you've got Paul, who's out there with all of his pedigree, with all of his training, with all of his degrees, all of his prestige, and Paul's out there converting these churches in mass. Are placing these churches in mass. And Peter in 2 Peter makes a statement about Paul, which Rabbi Joe says is a, a, he called it a Jewish compliment, which means it's got kind of a left-handed compliment. And if I'm not butchering it, and he's on the second row, throw something at me if I mess this up. But he said roughly, it's like in, in Jerusalem, uh, you can be walking and, and you can see a woman in a, a dress and you might say to her a compliment, but it's one with a kind of a built-in, yeah, it says, uh, you know, sister, uh, that's a beautiful dress you have on. Did you get it at the flea market? <laughs> and that's Peter's comment about Paul. It's, hey, Paul's written to you about these things in his writings, which are very hard to understand. And it's, it's got kind of a little twist to it. And, and, and why would someone, Peter, who's still human, write a letter 
that just reeks of Paul and Pauline statements and Pauline ideas. I mean, from the very beginning to the very end, grace and peace to you was a very Pauline expression. The church takes it over. But we don't find it in Greek literature before Paul. That standard greeting, grace and peace. Peter puts it in here. You know, so, so what's this thing? And then how can you read a five chapter letter and find from supposedly Peter and find no specific references to stories in the life of Christ? He walked with him for years. So these are some four of the major arguments that are out there. Let's take a moment and let's think through these logically. Because if you just read these arguments, you start thinking, hmm, I wonder if he did write it. But the appropriate thing to do is to sit there and say, let's weigh the arguments determine how credible they are. And then let's look at the arguments for Petrine or Peter's authorship. And then we can draw our conclusions from there. The first one, Peter uses the Greek Old Testament. Big deal. Do you know why there was a Greek Old Testament? There was a Greek Old Testament because there were so many Jews dispersed throughout the Greek world, where Greek was their primary language. So they translated long before Jesus, at least a hundred years before Jesus. There's a letter of Orestius that gives kind of a folklore translation, but regardless of that, it looks like, you know, in Alexandria, Egypt, home to one of the largest libraries of, of history at that point in time, They wanted a copy of the Jewish scriptures. And so the Jewish scriptures are translated into Greek. The holy books. And those get used throughout. Paul is referencing the Septuagint more times than not. Because that's what the audience was using. If you come talk to some of my friends who are, who are, are immigrants from Mexico. Manuel Duran is an immigrant from Mexico. He does great with English, fantastic with English, but it's his second language. And when he's talking to his family, he talks in Spanish. When he's talking to Becky, he talks in Spanish. But with me, it's English, and he does great. But his children, they'll talk to Becky in English and me in English because they're a generation removed They've lived their life in the United States. And English is a primary language for them, just as much as Spanish. And I suspect their children will be in danger of not speaking Spanish hardly at all. So now you've got generations of Hebrews living outside of of, uh, Israel. And Greek is the language. Peter uses the Greek Old Testament. He's writing to the dispersed in the Greek lands. That's that's what I would expect Peter to use. Don't think for a moment Peter lived in Israel all of his life. He's martyred in Rome. He clearly made it to Corinth. He clearly made it to Galatia, one of the recipients of this church. He's gone out into the dispersion and preached the gospel God told him to go preach. Greek Old Testament, nothing. No specific stories of the life of Christ. 
This is the one of the reasons I think it was written by Peter. If I'm going to fake authorship of something, and I'm going to fake the authorship in the name of Peter, I'm going to put stuff in there that makes me look authentic. I'm going to tell you about the conversation that I had with Jesus when nobody else was around. I'm going to supplement the gospel stories with a few juicy tidbits about his eating habits. I'm going to put some stuff in there that make you think. You know, I'm going to tell you what Jesus whispered in my ear that wasn't included in John's accounting of me chopping off the ear in Gethsemane. I'm going to put something in. The fact that the writer doesn't feel a need to prove who he is by putting it in there, I think is an argument at least as in favor of Peter's authorship as it is against it. Now, I want to look at these last two together in this sense. The Greek's too good for a Galilean fisherman. Ah, Peter had Greek. There's not any doubt in my mind. Look, you meet Joe Shulam. I did not ask you this yesterday, but I'm going to ask you this. All right? You've got nine languages. You were able to speak last night in English. You were able to do the Q&A in English. English is not his primary language. His primary language is probably Spanish and Hebrew. Okay. Uh, uh, he's a Sephardic Jew, born in Bulgaria, moved to Israel at a young age. All right, so here's my question. You're able to think in English. Are you able to think in Hebrew? Are you able to think in Spanish? No. How many languages do you think in? Can you think in more than two or two? Two. When you can think in multiple languages, I suspect you you use a little bit different English when you're thinking in English than when you're just translating your Hebrew into English and you're thinking in Hebrew. That's what my multilingual friends tell me. And 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 so the fact that he's got Greek, come on. And how good is his Greek? Well, I suspect to some degree it's dependent upon whether he's thinking in Greek as he's doing it or whether he's thinking in Hebrew to a Hebrew audience and just translating it into Greek. But I want to take that argument anyway. I want to take it and I want to look at it with the argument in verse 3, or my third argument, that that there, First Peter uses too many Paulinisms. And I want us to look about how these letters were written. You can read Paul's correspondence, and it looks like with even Paul's correspondence, Paul would use a secretary. There's a fancy Greek word for it, but a secretary works for our purposes. And that person would take down Paul's writings. And as that person takes them down, Paul would often at the end write his own little note, a personal note. And in, in one letter, it says, look at all these large letters I'm using when I write this, which is why some scholars think that Paul had a vision problem. But that was a typical way to do things. I got to tell you, I got a lot of people at the law firm that, that write letters for me. 
and I'll pull him in. I'll pull in Alex and I'll say, Alex, I need you to, uh, Alex is a lawyer, works for me, and he's my right hand on a number of different things. I'll say, Alex, I need you to write a letter to uh, this judge. And, and these are the five things I want in there. Bum, 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 bum. And he's making his notes. He writes the letter. He shows the letter to me. I might change this. I might change that. But the letter is going to reflect some of his wording. And that was happening then just as much as it happens now. And that doesn't mean it's not my letter. It certainly doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not involved in that work. But it does mean when you read the letter, you're going to see some different things. Peter uses too many Paulinisms. Look at this passage, 1 Peter 5.12. 1 Peter 5.12. Let's see. I think I've just somehow turned purple. Richard, what did we do? Wiggle a wire. Wow. That's pretty impressive, Richard. Man, you're sitting on the front row. So let it be written. So let it be done. First Peter 5.12. By Sylvanus. He's got a nickname. Care to guess what his name shortens to as a nickname? Silas, by Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, by Silvanus, by Silas. Who is Silas? Oh, we know a lot about Silas. We know a lot about Silas. Second Corinthians, Paul references Silas. Second Corinthians one nineteen. Second Corinthians one nineteen, the Son of God. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy, and I. Was not yes and no. In him it's always yes. Silas was a missionary with Paul. Silas and Paul minister together in Corinth. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.1. We're getting at the very beginning of it. 1 Thessalonians 1.1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessaloniki. Same thing, First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians one one. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. If you read Acts fifteen through Acts eighteen, you'll see the mission trip where Silas is with Paul and going through all of these different things. Silas has got Paul's letters. He's one of the authors with Paul. Don't think for a moment that we're the only people with a Xerox machine. Okay, maybe they didn't have a Xerox machine. But they kept copies of their letters. 
They made multiple copies of the letters. Some of them are letters like Ephesians that were meant to be encyclicals and go to a number of different churches. And so you've got Silvanus as the one through whom or by whom Peter is writing. So if we go back to the text, uh, to the PowerPoint, this idea that the Greek is too good for a Galilean fisherman and it uses too many Paulinisms, to me that's very consistent with Silas being the vessel for, through whom Peter is writing this letter. By the way, Silas is not for Second Peter. Because as good as the Greek is in First Peter, the best argument that if, if I were arguing against Petrine authorship, against Peter as the author, best argument I see out there is not so much that the Greek's so good, but that you compare it to the Greek of Second Peter, and it's like night and day. Second Peter's Greek is as raw as First Peter's Greek is polished. And, and you sit there and you think, this can't be written by the same guy. But First Peter, I think it's clearly indicated within the letter itself. It's Peter's letter through Sylvanus' pen. And so that's what we have there. And, and that's substantially important, I think, for people to have a good confidence that what they're reading is not a lie. Because when you read it, and you read that first statement, the introduction, if you will, when you read it, and it starts out boldly, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at the difference between that and the way Paul often starts his letters. Paul will say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Because Paul's got to defend his apostleship oftentimes. I mean, Peter, it's like, hey, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, case closed. Let's move on. I mean, look, that, that, nobody's going to question whether or not Peter is authentically writing words for the church like they did Paul. So there's no defense here. That introduction, though, the first two verses have volumes of information. We could do a month's classes on the first two verses of First Peter. Let's go to the, the, the book again and look at those first two verses with a little bit more focus. Look at this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see? I mean, that's just it. Apostle of Jesus Christ, boom. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According... To the foreknowledge of God, of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied. Now you see that. See this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. What do we have there in that one verse? We have the Trinity. Oh, doesn't use the Latin word. 
doesn't give a doctrine, doesn't give an explanation. But we see God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. And as we continue to read through here, he'll reference him again as the Holy Spirit. For obedience to Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, this is just the introduction. But I got to tell you, if you're a Jew in the dispersion and you're reading this letter and you know your Old Testament. Who got sprinkled with blood in the Old Testament? Do you remember? The Israelites did. By Moses. At Sinai. To cleanse them. And those were Israelites who weren't in the promised land. Yet they had the hope and the promise of their destiny. And it is God the Father. And there is a strong implication of the presence. This is hearkening back to the idea of Jesus being present. As as Rabbi Joe said yesterday, slain before the beginning of the world. I think his expression was, God got the medicine before the disease ever happened. And we see it reflected in Old Testament passages over and over again and explained through New Testament passages like this. So that's the introduction. If we go back to the PowerPoint for a moment, and we could unpack that, but instead uh, uh, we're going to keep moving because this is just an, an introduction class. This isn't a class on First Peter. Now the next section is uh, uh, the character of salvation. What is uh, the character, what is a characteristic of salvation. Those of us who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, what does it produce in our life as character? One of the things that's here is perseverance. Peter wants us to know that as children of God, we have a perseverance that comes not from our own efforts, but comes from the power of God himself. That God is going to guard His children. Look at verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, Matthew 16. Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Peter's the one who declared his faith. And Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And I like this expression, born again, that Peter's using. Because Peter's born again is not the same born again language that John writes with later. John's language can mean born from above. 
Peter's language is very clearly born again. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and here's our perseverance, to an inheritance that's imperishable, that's undefiled, that's unfaded, that's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How are you being guarded? How am I being guarded? By God's power, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the perseverance. It doesn't matter what you're going through in your life. Peter is writing a letter that that deals with suffering a lot. Peter's about to be martyred as he's writing the letter. Within, He's writing it in the 60s. It's uh, at least the five years of his martyrdom. But suffering is clearly on his mind. And he's writing to people who are enduring suffering. Some people who he wants to make sure aren't sold the bill of goods that says, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're on easy street. Advanced token to boardwalk. And then you own it with hotels. If you just have enough faith, name it. You claim it. It's yours. Peter says, no, 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 no. He's writing to people who are suffering. And he says, it's your faith which is going through which God's power is guarding you. Not from suffering, but through suffering. And so he he wants the people to know that through God's power they're being guarded in the midst of their suffering. Now, if God's weak, there is no solace there. But we do not worship a weak God. We worship a God who raises from the dead. The God who raises from the dead, the creator almighty. God, the highest, El Elyon. God, the creator. God is guarding us in the midst of our suffering. That's a marvelous, marvelous thing. So in this, we rejoice. Though, you know, we may be grieved by various trials, but the tested genuineness of your faith. Oh, that's hilarious. This is the, well, I mean, it's not like hilarious, like ha 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 ha. The translators of the English Standard Version have done something here that's different than the version I memorized it in. The version I memorized this passage in is, is that so that the genuineness of your faith, because the Greek word there is genuineness that that is the greek word but and and the word tested is not really added there but peter makes a play on words here which by the way is a classic uh uh classic greek i mean this is one of those areas where you look at the greek and you just say that was that was really well done it says so that the genuineness in the greek of your faith more precious than gold Whoops, let's get over to more precious. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the genuineness of your faith that's more precious than gold, though gold is tested by fire, there's a pun in the Greek. There's a pun in the Greek on this word, gold is tested by fire. Tested comes from the Greek word dekomai. Tested. It's the idea of, of melting the gold so that you can skim off the impurities. That is testing the gold. Dekomai is the verb form for, for testing. Okay? But you can take dekomai and put it into another form and you get dokimion, which is the word that we have for genuineness. So this word, the genuineness of your faith, is a pun off of your tested faith. The testedness of your faith. And so what the ESV has done to keep the pun is they've just added an extra word. The tested genuineness. Uh, which is a, a wonderful way to do it. But but here's what Paul sa- or Peter is saying. Peter is saying, here's a parallel. So let's look at gold. Let me see if I can get this on the screen. There's gold and there's your faith. And in some ways they're the same and in some ways they're different. Both get tested. So if you test your gold and your faith, you will prove them both to be genuine. You will prove them to be pure. And you will make them genuine and make them pure through the testing. But, here's the contrast. This is so much more valuable than that. We would rather have this than all the pure gold in the world. So the testing of your faith proves your faith to be genuine. What you go through with God's guarding and protecting you will grow your faith. Now, here's a curveball. How many of you have ever prayed for more faith? Raise your hand. Did you realize most of you have been praying for suffering? Lord, I'd like more faith. Okay, one of the best ways to do that is to send you suffering. And then, heaven forbid we suffer and say, what are you doing? Because he can truly say you asked for it. There is a level of of, of uh, interest to me in this. All right, back to the PowerPoint. So Peter goes into the character of salvation. From there, Peter starts talking about the claims uh, of salvation. Okay, so we're saved, and one characteristic of that is this perseverance. God's going to guard us. He's going to protect us. He's going to purify us. He's going to use trials to our good. But there's something God wants us to know. When we're saved, there's a claim He's made on us. The claim, be mine. It's a claim that we're to be holy. Our holy God ransomed us 
to be holy. We weren't ransomed to be uh, uh, just just to eat donuts, though they are holy. We weren't ransomed just for uh, our job. We weren't ransomed just to to plug into the community, the Qantas Club, the Rotary Club. We weren't ransomed just to be in a family. We were ransomed to be holy like the holy God who ransomed us. Let's look back. So 1 Peter 1, we're skipping to 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully Oops. on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy as I am holy. And that's Leviticus 11.44. But there's also Leviticus 20, 26. I mean, it's not just one time in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Gen- Leviticus 20, 26. Another passage that echoes the same idea. Jesus, uh, the, the Lord says, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. This is in the context of what you eat in Leviticus. The idea that the, the, the Israelites would eat differently than the other nations was not simply some gastronomic thing of God trying to bring down the pork market. It was a very deliberate image of God saying, I want the world to be able to look at you and say, you are separated out from other people. You are holy. You are mine. I have a special message and promise that I will keep through you. And so this is Peter saying, hey, the Messiah came through Jesus. God kept his promise. God used Israel for that end. But that's not the end of the story. And we are called to be holy because He is holy. So as He who called you is holy, so you shall be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall um, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father... If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Because ultimately, the recipients of this letter weren't simply exiles from Israel. Any of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, are, are, are we belong to the kingdom of heaven. And as Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. 
This world, as the old hymn goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Now, I'd love to tell you that we just made it through the whole letter. We didn't, but we are out of time. So here's what I want to do. I want to jump to the points for home. And uh, let's see if I can get there pretty quick. Bam, 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 bam. You can read the rest of it in your lesson. Next week, we have a special treat. You will want to be here. Next week, uh, Peter Williams is going to be in, in town. And he said, uh, hey, can I come to class with you? And I said, only if you teach uh, uh, with me. And uh, uh, so next week, Peter and I will teach together on Second Peter. And uh, so we'll get our Peter to talk about Second Peter after we have just talked about First Peter. And depending on how things do, we'll come back. But here are your three points for home. We'll do them in three minutes, but Dale will still cover them. Be amazed. I just stand amazed in the presence of God and Jesus of Nazarene. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's caused all of this. We've got a God in the saving business who's seeking all who are lost. We've got a God not trying to get us out on a technicality. We've got a God who's trying to use every technicality he can to get us in. We've got a God who is truly bent over backwards to guard and to open, to provide a place for us in heaven through the sacrifice of his son. So I'm amazed at our God. Point for home number two. I want to be obedient. As obedient children, I don't want to be conformed to the passions of my ignorance. As if I didn't know any better. I don't want to be conformed to some ignorance of of some unsaved cretin pagan out there. Who's living for today. Because I've got a focus and a hope. I know where I'm going. And I know the God who called me, who's protecting me. And I'm going to be holy like he's holy. God help me to be at least. And then the third thing. I want to show love. And we didn't get to this passage today. But 1 Peter 1.22. Love one another from a pure heart. And that's what I want to to really, that's a practical way for me to try and grow in holiness is to try and grow in love. So with that, could I share the blessing over you and then we will depart and I pray we see each other next week. Lord, I ask you to bless my brothers and sisters and those listening to this message. I ask you to bless them with your love. A love for others, Father, that mirrors the love that you have for us shown to us so clearly in Christ. I ask you to bless them, Father, with with not just love, but with a drive and a desire for holiness. Lord, may your spirit instill in them the, the battle for holiness. And Lord, as we walk in victory, may we give credit and glory to you. And as we fail in that battle here and there, Father, would you lift us up? And would you strengthen us not to give up? but to be guarded by you in that, Father. And and also, Lord, guard in suffering, anys that are suffering right now. May we see it as just a small way to mirror the life of Christ who suffered an eternity for us on the cross. I pray these blessings in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.